and welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh, and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Today's episode is about both Following and Memento, the first two feature films from Christopher Nolan, and I'm happy to be joined by recurring guest, friend, and Christopher Nolan enthusiast, Nick Menta. Nick, thanks for being here. Hooray! <laughs> Uh, and, and I mentioned we're talking about those first two movies from Christopher Nolan. Nick, neither Nick nor I had ever seen Following, which, I mean, I'm guessing a lot of the people that might be clicking play on this right now haven't. I, I think we'd both recommend that they do because uh, it's lesser known. But I think given uh, Nick and I originally planned to do this podcast around this time because this was when Tenet was originally scheduled to come out. And then it kept getting pushed and we were naive and we thought the pandemic would eventually get better and our country would be smart and do things the right way. And movie theaters would be open by August. And uh, we're recording this as of like three days or two days after them and definitely delaying it. So who knows when, but like I, I'd already done some homework for this podcast. So we figured we'd go ahead and just do it and, you know, talk a little bit about Christopher Nolan and the bigger picture. And then kind of in the context of what some of his hallmarks are possibly, because Nick is someone that's watched a lot of his movies on multiple times could uh definitely had some thoughts as he was watching some of these early christopher nolan films uh back and uh i guess but I, but i guess i do want to start nick and talk a little bit about current events because as i said we had originally planned this to kind of coincide right with like being a, a revisiting of some other christopher nolan movies and right before theaters are back open again and because I, I i've been trying to you know talk about movies from directors that i had an interesting reason to revisit whether it be a, a, a a classic from a director who I'd seen most of the rest of their filmography, but hadn't seen that one thing or like an intro to a genre that I really wasn't familiar with. I did a Kung Fu episode uh, or <laughs> things like that. Like just some random reason to revisit something. I, 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 I went back and did my cousin Vinny with the friend who likes that movie. Cause I hadn't watched it since I became a lawyer. So I'm thinking of interesting reasons to go back and watch movies. And I thought, well, I can go watch this Christopher Nolan movie that I've never seen before, uh, right before theaters open again. It's a cool reason to talk about him. And he's the one that's going to open up theaters. And I still think he wants to be the one to open up the theaters, but maybe it's not really happening, uh, anytime soon. Uh, so I guess my question is after talking about all that, and you've probably been thinking about a little bit more about Christopher Nolan these last few days, would you, uh, go in on September 1st, if they put, uh, tenant in theaters and said, all right, there's two, two empty seats between every seat that someone sits in for two empty seats between every party, but this is your chance to see tenant. It's in theaters now. Uh, would you do that? Do you love Christopher Nolan that much? And have you reflected on your love of Christopher Nolan these last couple of weeks as he's, you know, kind of at times indicated he wants to put the movie going public at risk so he can be the savior of cinema? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's quite a box. Um, so the answer is no. Yeah. And I actually had a really good test case for this just a few weeks ago. My, yeah. my local art house theater here. Shout out to the Enzian. Yeah, shout out to the Enzian Theater in Winter Park, Florida, or I guess so, in Maitland. A couple of our other recurring guests are also Josh and Daniel are also Orlando based, and they are big fans of the Enzian. But I didn't even know until Nick told me that they were actually opening up and doing a Christopher Nolan thing. They were doing Nolan Week, and I imagine you know maybe it was partly to get people in, uh, you know, post pandemic. But they they were doing it for the same reason we're doing this podcast because Tenant is supposed to be out right now, so that was. Uh, that was the theme. They were showing all three Batman films plus Inception. So his work from, you know, 2005 to 2010. And I was very bummed. I wanted to go and I ultimately made the responsible choice not to. But mm -hmm. Batman Begins and Inception are two of, if not the, if not my top two favorite theater going experiences of my life. So to go back and just be able to watch those on a big screen again 
is an opportunity that under any other circumstances I've absolutely would have jumped at. But given everything else that's going on, it did not seem uh, it did not seem like a good idea, nor would seeing Tenet in theaters. To circle back to what you had just mentioned, um, maybe maybe it won't open here, but maybe it will open internationally before it comes to the United States and we'll get sort of um, a reverse release from what we're used to. It would not surprise me if Warner Brothers went and maybe took this overseas and, and waited it out domestically because it's, you know, Nolan obviously always goes out of his way to reveal as little about his films as possible. So maybe that's not ideal from a release standpoint, but you do wonder how long they would sit on a picture. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I don't really... I mean, maybe I know a little bit more about the economics of this stuff than your like your, your average moviegoer, but I don't know enough to know like if it's really worth it for them to do that before it's safe to go to the movies in Los Angeles. And uh, so, who knows? Maybe not. And but at the same time, like you said, if he he's he's so closely guarded about the details of any of his films, I don't think we know anything about Tenet. I don't think the trailer really tells you all that much about Tenet. We know these. It's what we know: time traveling detective, something, something. It'll look cool. Robert Pattinson. John David Washington. Yes. Yeah. We know more about Robert Pattinson's press tour than we know about this movie. And uh, it's been great. And it's honestly, the movie's going to have a lot of uh, a lot to live up to if it wants to be as fun as his press tour. But that's about it. So it's like, I, I don't know if he's really going to want to put it in theaters uh, at that point before everything comes back. And I mean, I get it. I think I, I respect the fact that he really likes the movie going experience. Because if we just want to talk about him as a just him more broadly as opposed to me just like kind of throwing a loaded question at you i do like that i mean i get a kick out of people joking about watching dunkirk on iphones and stuff just to like because it's fun to think <laughs> it's fun to think about his facial reaction if you if someone were to tell him that but i really how to res- consume chris nolan content while actively pissing him off the most yes that yeah. that would be how to do it i get a kick out of that and i in a good natured way in that i i am someone that still like very strongly believes in the theater experience but is also like i'm not going to go to a theater i mean i live literally spitting distance from an amc but i'm not going to it until it's safe enough to put new movies in and as much as he might want tenet out i don't think the theaters and as much as the theaters are hurting i don't think the theaters are going to find it worth opening because the studios aren't going to find it worth putting their movies in theaters until the until it's safe to go to the movies in los angeles and los angeles has kind of gone in the opposite direction of new york as far as just their coronavirus numbers so i i I love the theater, but I'm not going back until it's safe for uh, safe enough to actually have them want to put Tenet in. So my point being, though, like I want that pr- experience preserved. Like a lot of there's there's so much hubbub at the beginning of the pandemic about you know oh is this going to be the new way we do it when they put all these different these handful of movies kind of went straight to VOD like Trolls World Tour. Tour. I, I I I can't say I watched that one. Oh yeah, I forgot I you did watch it. I forgot you did. Nice. Yeah, Nick tried to get me to do a podcast on that, and I, I couldn't say I was too excited to. And then he, he had a deeper read on the movie that almost made me watch it, and then I just forgot about that till now. Uh, apparently, apparently it, it has levels, apparently. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's three levels down, so it's a Christopher Nolan inception of a, of a Trolls World Tour film. <laughs> um, but they've been between that or, you know— uh, King of Staten Island and even A24 has gotten in on the act and put First Cow out, which I'm going to hopefully have a podcast on in the next month. I mean, more are doing it. Everyone's like, oh, man, is this going to really even kill the theater even more? And, I, and I'm one of those people that really hopes hopes, hopes that's not the case. I, 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 I want them to stay open and all that, and I really value that Christopher Nolan really cares about this kind of stuff. And I'm guessing it had probably been since – I mean, would you – I don't know. You probably weren't really super into Christopher Nolan in 2000, I'm guessing. I, I, I'm guessing you didn't see Memento no. in a theater. 
So was, no, I did not. So was so I guess my my I guess a good entryway into this conversation then might be I'm guessing then probably uh, I was just looking at it. Did Prestige come out before Dark Knight or before uh, Batman Begins? Uh, Prestige was after. So, no, Prestige, so, his, so his was Batman order. Begins probably would have been the first Christopher Nolan movie you saw in a theater, and I'm guessing you've seen everyone Correct. in a theater since then. That uh, I did not see Prestige in theaters, but I, but oh. I can say that that from. Dark Knight Forward, yes, I've seen everything, and I've certainly seen all of his films. As far as the first time I saw Memento, I'm going to guess late teenage years, early 20s, and then have periodically revisited since. Yeah, so, I mean, I guess this would be the first time, this would have been the first time in quite some time you would have watched a new Christopher Nolan movie not in a theater. Sure, yes, and... I, I don't want that to happen. I mean, I would rather him sit on tenant, to be honest with you. Right. I don't know if the Enzian showed following, but I mean, they were probably they're showing... going to. In oh, August. really? Oh, okay. yes. Another thing, I'm going to have to skip. But that, <laughs> that that at one point I was going to pitch to you. I'm like, if we can if we can continue delaying this indefinitely, I'll just go in the Enzian. But that's not going to happen. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I mean, a few months ago that might have seemed plausible, and because but the fact is, uh, you saw one of these with 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 without a theater. I mean, and it's kind of ironic, and then it happened to be one that was like so low budget and maybe not visually ambitious, though visually impressive, I would say, uh, for a movie that literally did not have a budget. For the, for those that don't know, and I and I I, I we're just going to probably spoil this movie because it, it's really hard to talk about this or Memento or most Nolan movies that fuck with time without spoiling them because they are you know like they're they're not a lot of them are not chronological or linear and it's hard to really kind of talk around that stuff so i i mean it's on the criterion channel and you can buy it and rent it per, per, pretty cheap in all the other usual places but uh following is you know it's the story of a you know a, a struggling young writer who doesn't even really get a real name throughout the movie he calls himself bill and dan at various points but yeah uh, he's credited as the young man He's kind of wandering aimless around, aimlessly around London, trying to find inspiration for his writing, or kind of not get too go too crazy with his own loneliness. So he begins to fill time by following people for various reasons, and becomes fixated on another man who goes by the name of Cobb, who kind of confronts him after his being followed. It turns out Cobb is a burglar, and they start kind of going in on these there's the schemes together but it kind of turns into something else when uh things get a little too personal in the work for the young man and he kind of gets involved with some of the subjects that they've been burglarizing and to varying degrees and it turns into a couple of different things uh and i think it's interesting how this movie does tie into christopher nolan because i kind of went into it nick thinking that oh, this is going to feel like way different from his other stuff based on what I knew about it. I, I knew it had no budget and I knew it's really short. It's only 69 minutes. That's another reason why you people should just go watch it. It's really not a big time commitment. And I just assumed knowing what little I knew going in that it was just going to feel like something really different from anything else I'd seen from Christopher Nolan. And it, it's pretty evident uh, not too long into it, that that's not the case, and you can actually see a lot of the tendencies that would become to, come to define his later movies. But you then let me know afterward that you thought some of the stuff in there was either like I think the term you either used was crack or catnip, one of those two. I don't know what it was, <laughs> but you said some of this stuff was actually like crack for people that are big Nolan fans. So I'm guess I guess this is my long roundabout way of asking you. Uh, one, what did you think about like you know watching a new Christopher Nolan movie on your laptop? or maybe your TV if you had some other way of doing it, because that's obviously not the way he likes his movies watched, but that this was before he became an evangelist for the theater experience, and he was doing it cheaply. And two, uh, what did you mean by that comment as far as, like, man, this is, like, such an interesting test case for, like, what Christopher Nolan would become? 
Yeah, so this movie is exactly what you would expect a zero-budget Christopher Nolan indie film to look like. Mm -hmm. And that's funny because Chris Nolan, as you just mentioned, is now like the king of summer blockbusters. Mm -hmm. He's the guy known for these massive productions that cost hundreds of millions of dollars and go on to gross billions of dollars. But here he is, what, 20 years ago, not even be able like to afford the film that this thing is printed on. <laughs> uh, and yet the picture itself is quintessentially inarguably a Christopher Nolan film. Yeah. And if you, if you stripped away all of the tricks that have become, um, that he's become known for, if you get rid of the award-winning actors, the budgets, the IMAX cameras, take it all away, it would look like following and go figure. That's what this film is. Mm -hmm. It's nonlinear. Uh, it, uh, you know, it accordingly plays with time. It's got all these little tips and tricks. And I guess to answer the second part of your question, what, what, what is crack for Christopher Nolan enthusiasts look yeah. like? Um, you can tell after watching following and memento, especially in order back to back that he was thinking about inception 10 years before he made it. Really? Um, and what, well, we'll start right off the bat about a burglar named Cobb. Hmm that you, you have a burglar in a suit whose name is Cobb, and 10 years later, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio is breaking into the vaults in people's minds as a character named Cobb. I forgot. I actually forgot that. I, I haven't rewatched Inception recently enough. That's, that's hilarious. So, so it starts there. The, the Batman logo on the door, the young man's apartment, there's, there's the Batman 89 sticker on the door of his apartment, <laughs> and I immediately, like, it's like, you know, you, you question, okay, was Chris Nolan that much of a Batman enthusiast to randomly throw that in there? How did it get there? And a quick Google search just revealed that um, this movie was made on such a shoestring that uh, that actually was Jeremy Theobald, the, the main actor of the film. That was his apartment because they just needed somewhere to film. So yes. his apartment in the film is his apartment in real life. And 10 years earlier, he had just put up a Batman logo. Still, it was still there ten years later. He'd been living in the yeah. same place for that long <laughs> in so. London. That's that's hilarious. But it's also funny because, uh, I mean, it, it, we should say uh, Nick Nick kind of found it, and then I found it. There's like a bunch of different for such a small movie. There's a lot on Criterion about it, including a, a kind of an interview with Nolan and a director's commentary. And he made that very clear in both of those, where he's just basically like, "We had no money, so most of the locations, interior locations, you see, are like." a friend's place a friend's restaurant or like a friend of the family of a friend's place so you could imagine christopher nolan working on that level is so far removed from being a guy that would be given the keys to batman and that's just that shows you like how hilarious that coincidence actually is only a few years later because what following was 1999 is that correct well it, it, it debuted at the toronto film festival in 1998 and was shot because of they had no budget and they had to shoot on like weekends when these people these actors had spare time it shot over the course of like several months so honestly production on it i think would probably would have begun in like 97 or even earlier when they first conceived of it so so you consider that, and then you vault his career forward. Obviously, he goes memento, he goes mm -hmm. to insomnia. But if he's making following in 1998, yeah, it takes him what two, three years for a massive project like Batman Begins, which comes out in 05. Mm -hmm. So four years after he makes a film like Following, where he has to have the actors on indoor locations stand next to the window just <laughs> for lighting, yeah. he's making Batman Begins. And three years after that, he's flipping over a semi truck and experimenting with IMAX cameras for the first time mm -hmm. and putting something in. 
in an IMAX format that's never been done. So, so it's, it's actually a pretty it's quick a ascent. Ride. Yeah, it's actually a pretty quick ascent. But at the same time, like it's hard. It's hard to imagine him conceiving of that. And yeah, not. I'm sure he understood that he had a vision and he was talented and all that. But like, it's it's, it's it would be really interesting, like be in his head at the time he was making following to like even know if he could conceive of like doing something like Batman when he's having to operate on that level. When it, in, in, in actuality, like he was probably only like he was like about five years away from even like actually being in those discussions, you know. So yeah, absolutely. Um, and there's but there's so many other little notes in both Following and Memento that mm-hmm. smack of his other films, mm-hmm. particularly of Inception. So like we talked about, we talked about a burglar in a suit named Cobb who's in planning, who's in this case he's sort of planning evidence as opposed to planting ideas in people's minds. But there's there's a number of other things like. There's, there's one line the cop says that everyone has a box. Hmm. And you also see the scene where the young man breaks into a safe. That imagery absolutely comes back in Inception, right, where Leo is actively breaking into his wife's sort of mind vault. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the other thing that I noticed in, in Memento, and we, we can get into Memento later, but there, just as it relates to how these films sort of inform yeah. Nolan's later work, uh, you know, Lenny, Guy Pierce, and Memento is going off on this rant to Carrie Ann Moss about how even though his memory is clearly unreliable, that there are things you know for sure. And he goes on this this speech where he says, I know the feel of the world. I know how this wood will sound when I knock. I know how this glass will feel when I pick it up. There are certainties. You, you think it's knowledge, but it's a kind of memory and you take it for granted. As I listen to that and he picks up like, I don't, I don't know if it was, he picked up, he was banging on the coffee table. He also picked up something else that I can't think of. All I can think of is the totem from Inception and Leo being like, only you can touch this and only you know how this feels. And this is how you're going to keep your grip on reality. Hmm. And this is 10 years prior. Yeah. So, so it's, it's just stuff that like, if you go back, you're like, Oh, so of course these are Christopher Nolan films because not only do they look like it and sound like it, not only are they cut like it, but like you can see sort of the, the thread that connects everything. Yeah. And I think in terms of what he's interested in. Yeah. And what makes me weird, because what makes me a little odd as like a film goer that does watch all of his movies is that I think I don't love having my mind fucked with in the way a lot of these people do. And I think some, <laughs> of, I think I honestly, I think my, my favorite Christopher Nolan movies for the most part are the ones that like where that are linear and I don't dislike or think any of these are that are bad necessarily, but like, I, I think rewatchability does play a fact, uh, play some somewhat of a role in like how much I, and how highly I rate movies. And I, I, I guess I just like, it feels like homework sometimes when I have to go back and do it like this. Uh, and I don't know, Memento feels like, I mean, it just feels like the, just, uh, he, he's like, okay, I, I, sh- I, sh- I showed, I could do what I did in falling. I'm just going to kind of blow that all out and go even further on this. But like, we're, but like, I guess my favorite movies of his probably are probably like more like prestige and, and dark Knight and, things that like you know you don't necessarily kind of screw with it in that way even if like i still respect all of the others and you know you're making you made the comment about like you made you kind of pointed out a lot of easter eggs that pop back up in inception but the fact is like he was screwing with time from the beginning and i didn't realize that i didn't know that was going to be a part of following until that and i mean he obviously like i just kind of mentioned dark knight and prestige but like it's something he goes back to and he screws with time in like a, a much different type of way in dunkirk but it's obviously a thing where he's kind of playing with the playing around with those timelines but they're pretty distinct in that i don't think it forces your mind to work as hard as it does in some of these other movies and again i'm just i'm i'm just talking as someone that just has a lazy mind that doesn't want to be put to work like he's making me but i guess my question for you then is like is that something you really enjoy and 
get a lot out of and having your mind work in these ways where he's really, really forcing you to kind of and challenging you to like kind of turn over a lot of different things in your head as you're trying to watch this movie and take it all in. Is that something you actually get a lot of enjoyment out of? Because because you're just a, a, obviously a, a big fan of a lot of these, but at the same time, you also told me but when we've decided we were going to do Memento, which I I now blame myself for. Because you're like, hey, isn't that what we agreed on? And then I realized we agreed on Insomnia or Prestige, and I just like totally forgot. But it's like if Nick's already started going down the internet rabbit hole, of Memento, I'm not going to make him stop now. Like I don't want that to be for naught. But you did say I really only get Memento after I watch it was what you said. And so if, if a movie only makes sense to you like right after you watch it, like I don't know what that means, but whatever that, it, it's obviously challenging you in a way. Do you enjoy that challenge of a movie that you're not going to really fully understand unless you, and, try, if, and make sense talking about unless you do so like right after you watched it? Yeah, so I think with the Nolan experience, you at least know what you're signing up for. There's a body of work at this point. Now clearly like something drew me to this in the beginning. But at least now you know, okay, when I walk into a Christopher Nolan film, I can expect a number of hallmarks, and I can expect that the plot's probably going to be nonlinear to some degree, and I can expect that somebody's going to be really mad about how convoluted that plot is. <laughs> um, that's that's part of the fun at this point. Like With certain directors, especially after you build up a lengthy enough filmography, like I'm not a Michael Bay fan, but you know what? I, I damn sure know what I'm going to get when I go to a Michael Bay film. And I think you could say that about a number of directors. You just, at some stage, you decide whether or not it's for you, but you also know what you're signing up for. So like when I go, I, I can't even remember, was it Six Underground, the Netflix movie with Michael Bay made? I, I, I knew what I was walking into. I took that one off. I passed on that one. You, you should have done it. Uh, 40, the, the first 45 minutes of the entire film and then he could quit. Oh, okay. But um, you at least know what you're signing up for to some degree, well, right? You know, and that's how I always feel about Christopher Nolan. Well, you know, it's interesting though and that's a good point. I don't, I'm not one of those people that's actually angry about any of that stuff and it not making sense. And that's the one point I wanted to make before I like I got even deeper into maybe some of the plot of following was that like I think most of his stuff it, I, I kind of agree with what you said about Memento though I think Memento is probably the most challenging out of all of his movies and I mean Inception obviously has a ton going on and it's a lot of it's open to interpretation and stuff like that at the end but like you can still kind of get it at the end and you get how most of it the mechanics of it worked even if there's still things that you can kind of debate and I would say at the end of all of them they do kind of make sense but this is the first time I've ever attempted to like talk about him on a podcast really because, uh, or besides I Dunkirk, I've done a podcast on Dunkirk, but Dunkirk again, it moved the time was pretty easy to like kind of dissect cause the movie is so distinct in it's little different air land and sea thing or whatever. Uh, and you, it's, it's, it's a little easier to put together. I didn't interstellar came out like a, like a year before I started doing the movie podcasting thing. And I, so I just haven't really forced myself to like confront myself with having to actually dissect one of the movies. And I think I just got angry at the thought of doing that for Memento. I was like so mad at myself that I committed to doing it after we talked about it last week. I was like, I could have had such an easier time talking about prestige because I actually have, I, I trust him. I do trust that like what he's doing makes sense. Even if then after I'm like, two weeks removed from it. I'm not sure if I could explain it. I trust that it made sense at the time. And it's funny because before we started recording, you made it, you made a comment about Westworld, which is obviously it shares DNA with a lot of this Christopher Nolan stuff, both figuratively and literally because it's made by his brother who is a, works on most of his films with him. Frequent co-collaborator. Absolutely. Yeah. And so 
I, I, I trust Christopher Nolan products though more than I trust Westworld. Where and, and I, Nick and we've talked, Nick and I have had this conversation a little bit offline before. Like I'm a little, I have a little bit of fatigue of pop culture that's like centered around stories that like you really don't even know what's happening or a lot of the discussion about it is like what's real and what's not real. Like I don't really have time for that. I like other stuff. What that's a big part of something like Westworld. It's a big part of something like uh, Mr. Robot or Legion or things like that that are all really well done in their own ways. But it's like a lot of the plot is like you questioning what even happened or how it happened or anything like that. And I never have those questions at the end of a Nolan thing, even if it can be convoluted in its own way. Like I, I have that faith in him that it makes sense. But at the same time, it's like it's almost like he wants to challenge you to the point where it's like, man, if I start trying to really break this down, I might just sound like an idiot. And I kind of respect it, though. I it makes it so I'm like kind of I was kind of like dreading to having to try and talk about these movies. But at the same time, I respect that he can make a movie that convoluted, though. I trust that, like, it makes sense. It's just like my mind is only going to be in a place where it makes sense for so long, if that makes sense. And I feel like that's what sets him apart from a lot of other people that try and do some stuff that's like adjacent to what he does. So in terms of, I think Memento straightforward. I'm just going to let that sit there. That's like a dead fish on the show. No, I think it, um, I think it is, but like, I actually think it is. You get to the end. Once you get to the end, you're like, Oh, this is kind of straightforward. But then it's like, now I start trying to talk about it. It's like, where is there to go? You know? I don't know. So I, the, what I actually want to get into with you is the pacing of the film, because when it comes to a head at the end, when Joe Pantoliano is, is telling Guy Pierce, no, here's the reality of your situation, whether you know it or not, or whether you're going to be capable of remembering it or not, mm-hmm. I will tell you what your reality is. Mm-hmm. Then, of course, you could, you could sit there and question like, well, is Joey Pants lying to him as well? I don't know. That's, I, th- I think that is one of the unresolved questions of the movie, though I think it kind of more comes down on the side of him actually being a cop. Right. And, yeah. and I think, I think everything Teddy tells Lenny at the end of that film, you might as well take at face value because mm-hmm. I think it's infinitely more valuable to interpret the end of that movie as Lenny making a conscious choice to structure what his reality is going to be next, not knowing, knowing he can't remember something. So he is going to intentionally lie to himself while he has access to his short-term memory to dictate what his next reality is going to be that ultimately, I guess, at the front end of the film, at the beginning of the film, results in the death of, of Joe Pantoliano, of Teddy. So uh, anybody who's never watched Memento, I don't know why you're listening to this podcast, but if you just heard me talk about that, you're probably flummoxed. It's very available uh, online. Go watch it. And <laughs> that's not even really a spoiler because it happens in the first five minutes. Right. And, and it's but it's like it's free a bunch of places online. Like I watched it free with that, even without ads, even though it said it was going to have ads on like tube TV or whatever. Like go go watch it and come back. But this is not the first time either of us have watched this film. So what I do want to ask you is, mm-hmm. yes, even though this sort of really makes sense at the end and if you accept if you accept Teddy's explanation, you can be like, all right, this film is actually a lot more straightforward than the storytelling device that, that Nolan chose to use. Did you find as the movie pushed on, pushed to that conclusion, as the cuts started getting quicker and quicker, going back and forth from the black and white scenes to the color scenes, that there was either a pacing problem or that it started to feel tedious towards the end, considering you've watched it multiple times? I think this movie unlike some of his other films is maybe slightly less rewatchable because of the way it's cut. 
Yeah, you know, this is only the second time I've watched it. I think you've probably okay. watched it a, a little more than me. So, I mean, I kind of appreciated some of that, actually, in that, like, the first, I went back and read the review I wrote on Letterboxd, and I was, like, for my first viewing, I was, like, way too concerned with a lot of the mechanics of it. Like, I wanted, I wanted to know what the rules were with his memory, because is this, like, a thing? Did, did you actually, I mean, it's, it's not the same thing at all. Did you watch Palm Springs on Hulu? I, no, I have not. Okay, I'm not even familiar with it at all. Okay, I, I don't. I actually don't want to spoil much for you, but uh, is that the Sandberg film? Yeah, it's 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 it's, okay, it's, yeah, it's yeah, yeah. Groundhog Day adjacent. You've seen Groundhog Day, I'm guessing, <laughs> many times. Right. So I didn't know if like Memento, even though obviously it's they're they're very different. I didn't know if it was like a oh, is it like a, I I mean I I came to understand that it wasn't like Groundhog Day where it's like he's just like waking up and it starts fresh. Like he's like forgetting stuff within the course of like an action scene, which is actually kind of funny in certain ways where he doesn't you know he doesn't know if he's chasing the guy or the guy chasing him and he like guesses wrong on that time or something like that um i'm talking about it like it's that time where it's like 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 it is groundhog day it's not groundhog day like this we're just we're we're jumping back in at different points this stuff isn't happening multiple times but like you know i i i was like all too concerned with like how how often does his memory reset uh is is it all going is it 100 percent in order is it not 100 percent in order and everything just certainly clicked into place a lot more for me in this viewing so i'm not i think I, it's I, a bell curve maybe like the first time you're trying to keep up with this film mm-hmm. right the second time you're picking up on everything you didn't know that you needed to look out for the first yeah. time or at least it's clicking into place for you mm-hmm. the third time you're appreciating it on its own merits now we're into like the fourth the fifth time and now you're looking at how this film is cut and i think that's where i'm at yeah and, and i and i think that my thing is like I, I didn't find I don't find it like less rewatchable because I because of how it's edited because I actually thought felt I felt a lot of it clicking into place because I there was certain things you're like I like you said you're you're just like not as worried about on this viewing so I would I would say any hesitancy to like watch it again is more just like man do I want to give myself that headache but it's not like I <laughs> but I'm, I'm not like disliking it I, I did I'm not actively disliking it it's just like man this is a lot of work and there's like a lot of movies in this world I haven't seen that I'm kind of like having a fun time catching up on during this pandemic and do I want to like I could go devote some time to that or I could like feel like I'm going back to like algebra or something like that which I mean <laughs> and I, I don't hate that I, I, and I don't mean that in a way where it's as miserable as it sounds it's like man it's just like a lot of work and it's not even like and I guess that is because of the editing, but I would also say that like th- some of the editing I thought worked really well. Like I really liked watching that bar- that scene in the bar come together from like the first real interaction he has uh, with, with Carrie, Carrie and Moss, Carrie and, Moss. Yes. and like seeing that from all those different angles. Like I actually really respected how that came together, and that was an area where I was like, oh, I actually really like this editing. But if you ask me to like explain his arc with Teddy like I would really struggle with that at the same time because of how it's cut or it takes like a lot of the movie to like even understand whether or not the, the, the Sammy Jenkins phone call that he were, or I guess he's talking about more than just Sammy Jenkins when he's on that phone call in the black and white part of the film. You don't even know if that's happening before you don't know when in time that is happening. And so it's like, I'm thinking about that a lot at the same time also. And there's like a lot on my mind and it's a lot to piece together. But I, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I'm not like Matt. I, I'm, I'm having a tr- hard time answering this, but like, I, I'm not like, <laughs> I'm not mad at the editing. I'm more just like mad at myself because I feel like I'm not good enough at doing this movie podcasting thing to give this movie the uh, examination it deserves. But I say that, and then I, I pushed, I, I wanted to do this podcast today so I could take some of last night to go back and like read other reviews. And like, 
it actually made me feel a little bit better about the whole thing because a lot of other reviewers were like, yeah, I don't really think like, like even if it's, I, I kind of, like I said, I kind of agree with what you said about it, like, oh, it's actually kind of straightforward at the end. But it's just like, if you start like thinking about it too much, then you turn your, your mind turns into knots. And I remember. I've gone down rabbit holes in this movie. Like, and I, and I texted you before. Yeah. And I, I regret, I regret doing it because I gave you too much to think about right nah. off the top. I was just like, all right, so the last shot of Lenny <laughs> with his wife with the I've done a tattoo, is that real? Where does that fit in? Is that just him daydreaming? I've gone down that rabbit hole. I've gone down the Sammy Jankis rabbit hole a number of times. Oh. You can get very, very lost in this film if you want to, in the exact same way you can get very lost in Inception if you are so inclined. Right. Or but, but like I said, even even the end of Inception. Right, but even the end of Inception, like I, I wasn't like, oh man, this doesn't make sense. I, I like everyone else in the summer of 2010 made my Facebook status at some point mind blown because like I said my mind because that's what everyone else is doing. So I thought I had to do it. But at the same time, like it's not like that mind blowing. It's mind blowing that's a great movie, but it's not like incomprehensible that you can't wrap your mind around what happened. But if you stop and think about it, then you're going to go and twist your brain in knots. And I, I, it, it's kind of this, even though Inception's on a much larger scale, I did have the, at the end of Memento, and Memento is in its some ways like can even screw with your head even more. At the end, I was like, oh, this makes sense, but I have to go do a podcast on it. And what am I going to talk about? Because you, you even made that comment. Well, it gets straightforward and I'm just going to let it sit there. And I could have been the end of the podcast, but the fact is, like, we agreed to do a podcast on it, so what are we going to talk about? So now I need to, like, dive into it and start second-guessing things and this and that. Well, no, so th- there are a couple things, and, and I, don't, I don't mean to poke fun at the editing because it's a masterclass in editing. In fact, it's got like nominated the entire for film. Right. The entire film is an editing trick in a way, and, and trick is, is underselling it. It's, it's almost a staggering work of genius when you watch it. I just, I guess I would, I mean to say is you can only pull the rabbit out of the hat so many times once you know where this thing's going and once you know what he's doing. So there's, there's an appreciation of it and an understanding of it. And then I I think you could watch this film enough where as the cuts get quicker at the end, because you'll, you'll notice it. He lets everything play out for longer at the beginning of the movie, right? Mm -hmm. Each cut back and forth, whether it's a black and white color plays out longer. And then as he's careening to the finish, you're you're parrying back and forth at such a breakneck pace at some point that that that's what made me ask you that question but I, but, about the pacing. But what I will say about the pacing though is like it, it it serves like dual purpose. Like it obviously cuts the pot up, but it also gets you inside of Lenny's head in a way. Yes. And, and 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 it's it's very effective in doing that because you realize just how thin the margins were as to some of the events of this movie, where it's like you know you keep you keep picking up at that scene or. I don't know what you want to call that area it is where like he has the encounter where he where he uh, where he kills J- J- uh, John Gantz. Is it John Gantz? Is it Jimmy? Jimmy, Jimmy Grant. Grant. Jimmy Grant. Sorry. And but then Teddy shows up and all that. But like, you realize how thin the margins are. It's like as far as like, oh, his memory just happens to reset right before he sees Teddy's license plate and just how how important that is. And so you're as the movie is cutting as much as it is, you're like, oh, wow, like so many of the events of this could just be traced back to like that one moment where uh, the movie like cut cut right there and gets back to that point where he's like, oh, I'm going to write down that license plate now uh, because I just had that bad encounter with that guy. And that's that. And and just how that sets in course, like everything else you've already seen to that point, it's actually like pretty smart in that you've like you feel like you're in his head at that point because of how it's edited as opposed and and that's and that 
makes it a more meaningful choice than simply like, I don't feel like being linear. And I think that's part of the genius of the movie, even if like I can call that movie genius and be like, I don't feel like watching it for another three years. <laughs> I, I do think there's something that you probably, you do need breaks in the middle. And, and obviously, like if we, if we look at how the timeline matches up, the end of the film is really the middle of the course of events of the film. Because you have, you have the black and white portions that are starting at the earliest point and marching forward in time. Mm-hmm. You have the color portions that are starting at the end of the timeline and marching backward in time, and they converge at the end to basically pick up the middle of the timeline. Yeah. Well, and all throughout that, you have the Sammy Jenkins thing. And I know you were, yes. you, you're curious to talk about that. Is it because you have theories as to how that fits in with the rest of the movie or is it just because like uh like what 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 about that really kind of sticks with you because it is it's kind of funny how it in a way stands apart from the rest of the movie but is also like super super important to like lenny's story yeah so i think each time i watch memento maybe i come away from it differently and that that goes back to the comment i made to you that you brought Mm -hmm. up before that like memento makes sense to me right after i watch it and then i need to walk away from it again um, I think there have been different times where I've watched it where I've like fallen down that rabbit hole of trying to see if I can pin, you know, pinpoint, okay, is Lenny really Sammy Jankis? Is Teddy's story to be believed? And and I walked away from the film this time approaching it as much at face value as I've ever mm-hmm. interpreted it, where you just get to the end and go, yeah, Lenny's wife was diabetic. And, you know, Sammy Jankis really just was a con man. And that's the end of it. And I think the reason I believe that so much more now is because you see Lenny being willing to lie to himself at the end of this film. And that's what I touched on earlier. I think the crux of, of, of Lenny's character development, and it's, it's funny to say that he has an arc because the, it's how I just described it. The end of the film is the middle of the timeline. Mm-hmm. You can see that this is a man willing to lie to himself, whether he has memory of it or not. He is going to continue creating his own reality, and then that's what he's going to not necessarily remember going forward, but always put those pieces together again. Where do you stand on the idea of someone being able to remember that they have short-term memory loss, even if they don't remember anything from after the moment where they suffered the injury? It's a clear hole. It's a clear hole. (laughs) Maybe there's a missing tattoo because he's tattooed every part of his life on his body to tell him what he's doing. Mm -hmm. I never – and maybe I, I just need to pause it and look at guy pierce's body from head to toe again. i don't know maybe there's a tattoo on there that says like hey read all your tattoos you have short-term memory loss i've never seen that one yeah. but but the tattoo i kind of just consider that pot armor it's like one of those things you just have to accept but I, it's a there's funny a thing suspension of disbelief absolutely so so what do you mean by so what was the idea behind sammy jenkins possibly being a con man so is he just trying to get like uh extra like he's just trying to get extra insurance money possibly. And then he'll go back to like doing his own thing. Even if it means killing his wife, is that the idea there? I think the idea is that, that Lenny has convinced himself that he was actually investigating someone named Sammy Jankis, who that was probably their real name, um, who had the same condition that he did mm-hmm. and that who ended up inadvertently killing his wife, who was a diabetic because she wanted to test him to see if his condition was real. Mm-hmm. In reality, that happened to Lenny. That is his existence. And Sammy Jenkins was just some random con man that he had investigated, who who we know nothing about, sure, the fact that his name is Sammy Jenkins and he was a random con man. Oh, okay. 
God. Oh, oh, right, right, right. That, that's that, what happens if you take Teddy's story. Right. For, I for, I for, yeah, I forgot about Teddy's story for a second. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I was, I was on the lookout for that as I was watching it because I'd, for, I'd forgotten that was even a theory until you reminded me before I watched it. But like, I came away wanting to take it more at face value at the end. But again, there's just like, uh, I don't know. There's, there's so many ways to like just straight up dive into it and. I don't know. It, it, it's it's weird. I, I, I think, like I said earlier, I just kind of stand by what I said, where it's like you can kind of take this movie as being genius in its own way, but like at the same time, you can twist yourself in knots trying to like, you know, dissect it anyway. And I, I honestly don't even know what we accomplished because I do think the movie makes sense. And uh, but like you can just like you can take your mind places where you just like start questioning all of it anyway. But like at the same time, that's really not necessary. And you can you can be like wow that's like really impressive feat of editing and storytelling and they really did it and it's like straightforward and at the same time it's like so straightforward in a way that it almost it, it, i don't know there's a there's a reading of it where it's like airtight and there's not actually much to discuss which i think is really like super interesting you know right and then and i that's that's where i started this and just but then, but, but, then, but the tattoo the at the end does kind of fuck with that yes and and i've uh, the, the time of previous to this that I watched it, that tattoo drove me insane before I just came to the acceptance that, you know, that's just him daydreaming. And I like the idea of him having being capable of even having daydreams given his condition. <laughs> right. Um, I guess we shouldn't shortchange the performances because, I mean, we can we can fall down the Nolan rabbit hole of, of plot. And, and we're already going to we're already going to have to go backwards to falling, which I think is very fitting for this. Cause we actually didn't talk yeah. about falling that much, but why would we go linear in a Christopher Nolan podcast? Sure. Uh, uh, but I mean, people who never really worked again in following, if you want to start there, no, no, like, no, to, no, to no. my knowledge, the guy who plays Cobb is like an architect. Well, no, we could talk about the performances in memento and then go backwards yeah. if that's what you wanted to do. I mean, uh, Joe Pagliano is always great. I think it's funny. I actually happened to mention Groundhog Day, and I hadn't even planned to do that. But Stephen Tobolowsky is like in both. Right. Uh, yeah. But uh, but yeah, I mean, I I don't have much to add on Joe Pagliano. It's 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 you know he's just like he's so great in like every movie he's in, and he serves that purpose very well. Uh, I, I I don't know. I, I, I don't think ha- the scene where Carrie Ann Moss confronts Guy Pierce, knowing that he will not remember what she's saying. Oh yeah, that's and like, it's so viciously cruel to him. Is yeah. is fabulous work. By yeah, because she's she's like, it's like she's taking off like a whatever veneer of whatever she'd been giving him to that point. It's like striking, but at the same time, it's like this isn't really actually out of character. We don't know anything about this woman, right? And so, so part of it, part of it is the lift of the script and the editing to set her up for that. Mm-hmm. But she delivers in spades because yeah. she, she turns on a dime and she is just really vicious about it. And hats off, hats off to her for whatever reason. I'm, I'm, I'm always attracted to like, yeah, I'm a professional wrestling fan. I always find myself rooting for the heels because those are the people who are having fun. Mm-hmm. I always tend to like gravitate towards the villain in a film because they tend to be the actor who's the most unencumbered and gets to play it the biggest. Right. And that's just a terrific turn for her. Yeah, no, she's great. I'm, I mean, I don't even really have like a great point of reference for what Guy Pierce does in the movie because it's 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 so unique. It's like I, I, it's, I, I just kind of accepted it as like, all right, this, this is Leonard, and it, it's pretty good. Like I don't, I, as I was reading a little bit at the movie, like people were kind of like trying to draw Brad Pitt comparisons, and I don't know. I guess he was maybe attached to the movie at one point before even Guy Pierce was, which would have been very weird to do that in that close close proximity to Fight Club because I mean. 
that's also a movie that has a lot of like weird questioning. Is this even happening type stuff going on? Uh, but like, I, I think it's a little unfair to even draw Brad Pitt in there. Cause it feels, it does feel different from like, I'm not saying Brad Pitt couldn't have played that role, but like, it's, I mean, at the same time, I feel like he's doing his own thing and he's really creating like one of the more unique movie characters of the last 20 years. And, it, 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 and it can't be an easy performance because like the whole point of that character is that he has no arc and doesn't know who he is. And like, I feel like part of like being an actor is like being able to become someone else and sink your teeth into a character. And how do you sink your teeth into a character that like doesn't even know who he is? And I think that's like probably the most impressive feat of it all is that he's able to make this guy pretty convincing without even really being a guy that's can grow as a person. I, I would say that it's an underrated, underheralded performance because of exactly what we're guilty of, which is spending 30 minutes talking <laughs> about the structure of this film yeah. without talking about the man who grounds it, who mm. leads it, because he has to be convincing in this role. And the thing that I keep coming back to when I think about the performance is like this sort of charisma that he tries to play off where he's constantly explaining to people, you know, oh, I have this condition. And he, and he tries to evince that he has a sense of humor about it. And there's there's layers to this performance where you get the vibe that Lenny is constantly performing to other people as a defense because he knows he's not remembering. He's always trying mm -hmm. to like he's trying to make whoever he's talking to believe that he even knows more than he does because he's constantly referring back to his yeah. notes in real time in front of people. these conversations. <laughs> And they always call him out on it. They're like, yeah, check your pictures. Oh, did you, you know, <laughs> did you lose this again? Yeah, why don't, you, why don't you write that down? But he's still trying to keep up the con the entire time. Yeah. And it's, I think it's a really nuanced performance that gets lost, obviously, because of how the film is structured, but shouldn't get lost because it's really good. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I really think it's super impressive what he does and i already kind of went on my rant about that uh let me let's take a step back and talk about following again because i feel like we just kind of jumped over to momentum uh momentum to memento and but like i again i said i'm I'm totally fine with going out of order when we're talking about these movies because it really shouldn't make sense because uh it, it shouldn't really it shouldn't really be linear but what did you think about we, we just spent all this time talking about the plot mechanics of memento and obviously you could kind of, and as we already talked about, like falling, it's very evident it's a Christopher Nolan movie because it plays with time in that way. Do you think it served the plot of the film well to have it jump around like he did where all of a sudden you're following these characters around to where they're, oh, now they like have relationships with the people that we then later learn that they eventually rob. Do you think that like served a, a greater purpose than just like allowing Christopher Nolan just to like, you know, kind of scratch that itch that would eventually become something more? Yeah, so... I'm wondering, and, and this is an unanswerable question, had I watched Following without watching any other Christopher Nolan film, I wonder if I would have interpreted the structure differently. Mm -hmm. Whereas, because I watched the first film he ever made last, <laughs> it was just a joy to watch. Right. Knowing, knowing what his career became and knowing the way he tends to structure stories this was just accepted right off the bat where I'm like, of course, this is nonlinear. I'm here for it. Mm -hmm. um, so, so I sort of can't answer that question right. because my frame of reference is everything else he did. And it, he has such an aggressive, idiosyncratic, like unique style that, of course, his first no budget film would look exactly like this. Yeah. What I did appreciate mm -hmm. um, was was having the scenes 
where Bill, Danny, slash the young man, in one, you know, at the, at the beginning of the film, he's dressing in a certain way. It's very casual. He's got long hair. I believe he's unshaven. But then you have these these other cuts where, you know, he's got a tighter haircut. Suddenly he's wearing a suit. And you can, yes, it's a visual marker to, to sort of like specify what timeline we're in or where we are in the film mm-hmm. or just to say like this is happening not concurrently. Yeah. Um, but I thought it was a, beyond just being a visual cue to tell you where you are in the plot. I thought it was really nice in terms of character development that this guy is, is sort of a chameleon and, and is willing to change himself and adapt quickly. I thought it more than being just a plot device. I thought it told you something about the character. Yeah, that, and I, I guess I would say that I don't really necessarily have strong feelings on it, but, like, I like the way it came together enough that, like, I, I feel like it does, it, it comes together in a way that's, like, I don't know, less convoluted than than Inception or, uh, or in Memento, and I was like, okay, well, I guess this makes it more of a little bit of a puzzle box that you're able to do it in this order such that you're allowed to have that reveal about who everyone's actually working for at the end. And in a way that's kind of surprising, but not inconsistent with what's come before it. And it all kind of clicked into place for me. And I don't have to like make, it doesn't make my brain hurt to go back and kind of think about that plot. Like, like, oh yeah, well, I guess we didn't know that about that person or yeah, that's actually, I, I can kind of make sense of all of that. Even if it's just a very convenient thing that he walked into Cobb's life and the exact right kind of guy Cobb needed to pull off the scheme just happens to follow him into a diner. That's convenient. But at the same time, everything tracks and I just kind of, and not, and again, I already said, I trust that everything tracks in all of his movies. It's just a matter of how lazy I'm feeling at any given time. If I feel like trying to go back and do the work to figure it out, but like it's, it's short enough and simple enough that it clicks into place and there's not too much going on by nature of the runtime that I'm just like, Oh, that all makes sense. It's just like actually a very unique story. And in telling that unique story in a way that kind of surprises the viewer at the end, it was, it helped out to be able to go nonlinear to be able to do that. So I was like, okay, that makes sense. And it's kind of cool that I got to see you do this in a different way than I've seen you do it so many times subsequent. So I kind of appreciated that, but I will say, I, I think that first 25 minutes of the movie though, where, or not 20, it's more like 20 minutes of the movie. And you have seen, like I, I went back and watched the first 20 minutes or the first 20 minutes again, but like the first minute when you see him actually putting on the gloves and putting the stuff in that small box that is for the frame job at the end. Ultimately, I, I had forgotten about that like, already, but cause it was so quick at the beginning that I'd almost forgotten about that by the end of my first viewing. So I was like, Oh, that's cool. So it's, I should say from minutes two to tw- 21, basically where he starts following people in the street and ends up going through that first apartment with Cobb. Like that was like, I don't know. It was electric in a different way from what the rest of the movie was. And I almost wanted to live in that part of the movie for longer before he started jumping around, even though I didn't mind the jumping around that much. I just really love seeing it like him wander around London and then get confronted by this guy. And we'll talk a little bit about the performances, I guess, and how interesting it is that these actors didn't really do much else. But I was like, man, I'm really watching these guys, enjoying watching these guys do this thing. And this feels like a wholly unique story from anything I've ever seen as I'm watching these two guys like rob a house and talk about the idea of why people rob houses. Like, when have you ever, I'm sure you've watched your fair share of heist movies in your day, Nick. Like, when was the last time you really heard people talk about the psychology of what they get out of it besides money, which is wild? Al Pacino. Not Al Pacino, my God, Joe Pesci, sorry. Joe Pesci in Casino when he's robbing the house and he explains why he turns the pictures around. 
Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a good one. He yeah. turns the pictures around because I don't want these people looking at me while I'm driving. <laughs> yeah, that, that 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 is a good that is a good callback actually. But I mean, that was just like it was so perverted and weird hearing Cobb talk about why he likes robbing, and I don't know that that felt like something that was like that sequence just felt like something wholly unique from anything I've watched in a movie in ever, and I was yes. getting a lot out of that. Um, so I'll help you with the segue you just mentioned because there's two things that I really enjoyed about the turn that the film takes at the end. Mm -hmm. Once the plot starts to come together and the timelines start to merge and you realize that, that the young man is being set up, Mm -hmm. it feels anticlimactic just the way it's sort of cut together where you're just like, Oh, all right. So you're just dropping that here. The the plot's going to merge. And all of a sudden in this very anticlimactic way, we understand that the young man's being set up. But, but the film really for me comes together at the end in, and it, I don't know that Jeremy Theobald, the the main character, ever ever went on to do much else. It doesn't look like he did, but he plays the explanation to the cop at the end so well as he's trying to tell the truth (laughs) about this ridiculous sequence of events that he's just gone through and say, like, yes, I have committed some crimes, and yes, I am guilty of this, but I'm willing to tell you the truth so that you can nail this other guy, and I just want to come clean. As he's telling that story, he realizes— that this story is pretty much impossible, that no one would believe <laughs> him. And you can see him actively be becoming and finally resigning to defeat yeah. as he's telling the story. It's really a fine piece of acting from a guy who doesn't do much else. And it's it's a good piece of writing too, but he certainly sells it. He delivers it. And, and I guess the segue I'm setting up for you is you see Cobb in the street just disappear into the crowd. It is, it's really neat that a guy who is playing a con man who shows up in somebody's life and then disappears at the end of this film, disapp- he never does anything else with his career. Like, mm-hmm. this guy who plays a con man who disappears, that, that actor then just actually goes and disappears. It's kind of neat in retrospect. Yeah, I, and, and, and even that that's something that they're talking, and they're even talking about that idea at the beginning of the movie where it's like, why do you like why do you like following people and i maybe i'm now maybe i'm now confusing with the director's commentary but i guess like christopher nolan said he was kind of fascinated with that idea of like you can follow someone briefly and like think about everything that brought him to that point and then all of a sudden never see him again and it's like i mean that obviously wasn't meta when they made it but now it feels meta knowing what we know about the guy that played Cobb. his name is alex hall and uh, he literally doesn't even have a. It's literally his only acting credit. Uh, Jeremy Theobald has like other acting credits, not that many, uh, and they're mostly in shorts. And, One of which is a very small role in Batman Begins. Right, I was a young, younger Gotham waterboard technician is what he's credited as in Batman Begins. So I don't know, but he's also like he's a he's a producer on Following, uh, which is so it's like he produced it along with Emma Thomas, Christopher Nolan's real life now wife, and also frequent collaborator collaborator along with Jonathan Nolan, but like. Like Jeremy Theobald was friends enough with him to produce this movie with him, and it was almost like it didn't get brought along for the ride like a lot of his other mates did, aside from playing a waterboard technician in Batman Begins. Uh, I, I don't know because, like, like you were saying, like that's a really nice piece of acting he does there. And I mean, like Cobb is like probably walked away with the movie. I mean, they, this showed at the Toronto Film Festival in 19, 22 years ago now, uh, but it's, there's not a lot of writing out there about it necessarily. I mean, there's barely any full reviews that were linked to on Rotten Tomatoes. So it's like, I don't know what they said about this guy at the time, but I feel like if like a movie like this debuted at a festival now, everyone would be like, man, who's that guy? He's going to be on and going to do big things. 
I, 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 I don't even know. He doesn't have a Wikipedia page. He has like this IMDb with one credit. It's like, this guy's super charismatic and electric to watch in that scene at the cafe. And I, I, this is very bizarre. I mean, I thought it was legitimately good acting. I, I did too. I thought it was from both of them, but I'm, I'm disappointed he's not in anything else because I, I, charisma is the word. I, I was gravitating to the performance and it was creepy in spots where he's explaining why he robs people and like, He's he's a little upfront about it, and he's like, "Yeah, I kind of get off on the voyeurism," and it's like, "Okay, okay we're just going to go right down that rabbit hole." But but, but he does a great yeah. job hey, selling it. I, I I don't know if you got as far in the director commentary as I at least I did, but like no one's talking about it when they're on the roof after the first burglary, and he's like, he, "No one's like, I love the way this is shot." It, it was cool hearing him talk about rooftops just as a setting too, because it's like again they made this movie for no money. And he's like, look, the rooftops are a great way to like get like an actual background setting without like having to deal with a lot of noise because you're far away from the streets and you have like a you can have a like you, you can have a close setting with like a really expansive background and without having to pay a lot of money. And somebody tell that to Tommy Wiseau in the room. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, 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 Tommy probably thinks he's right there with Nolan and as far as the uh, great filmmakers of the 21st century. Uh, but they. uh but he's like, yeah, he liked the way that it was set up with Cobb, like kind of perched at a higher point from where uh, at that point, like he's talking about the, his thoughts on what just happened with the burglary. He makes a joke about how he planted the, the panties in that guy's pants. And even though it looks like the other woman was the one messing around and he's talking about all this stuff, but no one described him as he was like positioned higher than the young man at that point as like a, a, i think he, the term he uses like he kind of looks like a demented priest giving his thoughts from the pulpit or something like that was what <laughs> was what he called him because it's like in some moments he's so suave and in other moments like man it is kind of disturbing how he's talking about it and it, yes. it, it can vacillate between the two awfully quickly which again great acting i think so you mentioned that there's there's not a lot written about this um one of the quotes i did find ironically was from joel schumacher who directed the Batman films, the Batman franchise, prior to Christopher Nolan, is the one who ran into the ground with with Batman and Robin before Nolan comes along eight years later. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I, I guess the context of the quote only matters insofar as they have the Batman connection. But Schumacher said that he was in France in, I guess, 99, and they were looking for any film in English, and they ended up just walking into this indie British film called Following because they wouldn't have to read it in subtitles or because they didn't know French or whatever the situation was. That's how he stumbled into Following. Hmm. And the, the quote he gave in the interview was, I just thought it was the work of a brilliant young director. So I always had him in the back of my mind thinking, we're going to hear from this guy big time. Then I saw Memento and the promise was fulfilled very fast. So it's, you know, it's it's interesting in the context that like these are the two guys who took over the biggest IP that Warner Brothers has, mm-hmm. I guess, outside of Harry Potter, but but that Joel Schumacher would randomly walk into this black and white seventy minute mm-hmm. indie film because he needed to see something in English and and functionally discover Christopher Nolan as a director, and then sure enough, ties right back into Memento. Yeah, and I and I I still need to watch that Nolan Batman stuff. I think I'd even have a greater appreciation for that story if I did. I I read a lot about Joel Schumacher when he passed away recently, but I but 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 at the same time, like I just uh, I I need to watch more of his movies. And but I, I the one thing I just will say before we wrap up on this is that like I, again I just think it's I anyone that like 
I don't know why anyone would have listened to this point if they hadn't watched it, but I, I, I would say encourage other people to watch it because, as I said last week when I did the podcast on Palm Springs, which is only 90 minutes, Nick, and I think you would enjoy it, it's easier to get yes. people to watch stuff when it's short. And this is not a big commitment, and there are a lot of Christopher Nolan fans out there that probably don't even know this movie exists because I didn't even know it existed until a few months ago. And if they want to see, like, it'd be a cool, it's a cool experiment as it kind of, as Nick kind of explained, if you really like his other stuff, to kind of see all those things that work in this movie that is also very unique in its own way. It's even fun just to think about the way they made it because it's a cool story that this guy that's like making all the biggest movies, these tentpole movies, these big budget movies kind of showed he could do it the exact opposite way. And he's not someone that really only needs a massive budget to like make a promising film. Not that Memento was like a, a massive budget, but like, yeah, nine million dollars, and it's a clear step up in terms of yeah. talent. We're talking about two guys who never really worked again, and then his next film. I think they were Bob talented, Pierce. though. That was part of the point. I mean, right, but obvi- obviously, obviously, I think Joey Pants and Carrie Ann Moss. Yeah, 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 for sure, for yes. sure, for sure. Uh, uh, do you have any other final? Know, do you have any other final thoughts on this? Yeah, there's some weird connective tissue between the two films that I noticed. Uh, that, that there's the same clock in both films. This is irrelevant to everything, but it was just like. <laughs> Something I miss that. Th- that you would only notice if you watch both films back to back. So one of the clocks that, uh, or one of the clocks, they steal a clock from someone's apartment in following, and that same clock shows up again in Memento. Hmm. It's irrelevant to everything. It's just one of those things where it's like, it's funny that you recycled the clock because like clearly <laughs> he just he just randomly decided that like either, either I'm saving props or it was just like, oh, this means something to me and I'm putting this clock in this film again. That's and now funny. like now I want to go like there's there's two things I want to go rewatch Insomnia for because there's Batman logos in um, following and memento and there's the same clock in following and memento. And so now I need to go rewatch Insomnia to make sure I didn't miss a clock in another Batman logo. Interesting. Yeah, it's been a few years since I watched Insomnia too, and that was a. But like, it's like all takes place in like a hotel in that weird place where Robin Williams lives. So I don't know if there's as much room for a, uh, for a, for a clock in that one, or I mean for a Batman's for Batman postage. I mean, I, they could easily put that clock in the motel that Al Pacino is living in. Right. If if there's anywhere I'd leave this, it's it's almost there. Insomnia is the least Christopher Nolan film that Christopher Nolan has ever made, and he didn't write it. And he didn't. Well, that's and so that's probably why. Yeah. But I would actually encourage people to watch it just because like, it's it's a really good, tight, not fun by any stretch, but like the performances are good enough that you're certainly going to enjoy it. And I feel like it is a very good film from a from an excellent director that no one remembers or talks about. So mm-hmm. go watch Insomnia. We just spent however long we spent telling you to watch Memento and following, and I'm going to sit here and tell you to go watch Insomnia because no one's ever watched it, and I've never talked to anybody about well, I was, yeah. well, it. Other than- yeah, well, you know, Insomnia is good, and it's uh, it's kind of cool, if, if, especially if you've ever been to Alaska. Uh, I mean, I've been to, it's been, Jesus, over 20 years, or no, about 20 years, I guess, since I've been to Alaska, or 19 was years. Was it 24 hours of light when you were there? Basically. So it's yeah. kind of cool to like see that as like the uh, the thrust of a movie. I mean, as a I guess I was 10 when I went to Alaska and as like a 10 year old to like 
even wrap your head around that not getting dark was like very weird. And then I'm watching Insomnia 15 years after that, 16 years after that, being like, man, this is like, it's kind of funny that this is actually driving a guy insane. Um, I was driven to kill someone when I was 10 because the sun. (laughs) (laughs) So if you've ever been on an Alaskan cruise or something, it's, it's kind of cool just to be taken back there and seeing that. And, uh, it's cool Al Pacino and cool Robin Williams performance. And, and I, it's cool to see Nolan operate telling someone else's story also. And it does mess with time having a movie where there's no light. It's a different way to for him to mess with time in a way that's not that's not simply through editing which is like obviously we just talked way too much about that do you have any other before we sign off nick i mean uh i think we had started doing this when last time you're on the podcast we've been getting consistent with it since quarantining began do you have any other quarantining streaming recommendations you want to make other than insomnia anything else you've been watching yourself recently that you want to recommend to people uh dispatches from elsewhere on amc the the jason siegel project Oh, okay. um, I had heard a bit about it that I hadn't watched it yet, though. I think the less I say about it, the better, because uh, if you want to talk about <laughs> maybe you'll get frustrated by it because you want to talk about just obfuscating what's going on. Oh, yeah, that's, I did hear that about intentionally. it. Intentionally. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it but it is rewarding and it does go in a number of surprising directions. Um, so so Siegel really stretches himself both as an actor and then I would say he stretches himself personally as the series goes on, um, particularly in the the final episode. And for anybody who watches it, you'll figure out what I mean. But Richard E. Grant um, as Octavio Coleman. Oh, I didn't know he was in that. I like Richard E. Grant. He steals the entire show. Um, Now, I could really go down a rabbit hole with this. We could do an entire podcast just Mm -hmm. on dispatches from elsewhere because this was influenced – by a social experiment in, I believe, San Francisco sometime within the last decade. Hmm. And, and there is a very weird documentary, non-documentary, tracking this particular social experiment that Siegel ended up adapting into this show that becomes an intensely personal project for him. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a whole rabbit hole that you'll fall down. But, Josh, what you will particularly enjoy about it, even as you are frustrated by the obfuscation of the plot, <laughs> is that it is set in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and the, um, the whole show shot on location in Philly. And every episode kind of, like, takes place in a different neighborhood in Philly. Um, in fact, they do, like, this whole Fishtown episode just because they're sort of obsessed with all the murals throughout Philadelphia, especially some of the ones that pop up in Fishtown. And so... They incorporate the murals into the plot of the show. Interesting. It's, it's fascinating. I had no and idea film there. If, if you're from Philly or if you spend time in Philly, it's it's okay. it's good to watch just because you're like, hey, I know that. And it's weird that they're going to incorporate that thing that I know directly into the plot of this needlessly complicated but very fun show. You, 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 you might have just sold me on it because I – I mean, I, I, I already complained about it earlier. I, I only have so much capacity for stuff where the plot's not obvious. Uh, but I mean, I, I'm always there to watch stuff that's filmed in places I've lived. So that yeah. that might have signed me on. I don't have a ton to recommend myself this week because I, I, I watch stuff that like other people have recommended on the podcast the last two weeks. So it's nothing really new. Like a couple weeks ago, my friend Joe recommended Kim's Convenience on Netflix, which is this uh, fun show, Canadian show about a Korean family living in uh, Toronto. That's been, it's really hilarious. I was 
good recommendation by Joe. And then last week, Hannah recommended uh, The Vast of Night, which is on Amazon Prime. This Speaking of movies that like, have actors no one's ever seen before, it's pretty cool that they made this really good sci-fi movie with no one you've ever seen before. And it was, uh, and they really conveyed a 1950s town really impressively well. And what I can imagine wasn't a huge budget. So I didn't really have anything new I watched. I watched Bringing Up Baby on HBO Max because I'm again I'm trying to get my money's worth on HBO Max and watch old stuff there. <laughs> it was good though. It's kind of what inspired another movie called What's Up Doc that most people know. It's a Peter Bogdanovich movie from the early '70s, which I actually like better than Bringing Up Baby. But it still has some really fun, funny stuff in it. A really hilarious Catherine Hepburn performance, and it was made in like 1937. Yet a leopard plays a very big role in the plot, which is kind of funny that like in 1937 they were able to corral a leopard to like do what they wanted to on a like within a movie. It just seemed not that like you know training animals takes that much technology but it just seems like that would have been a big challenge when you only have so much time and you're you're shooting on film and not digital that you got a leopard to cooperate in your screwball comedy i don't know i i think it's worth watching though like i mean i think there's a lot of other better old stuff to watch if you're trying to just dig through this really rich library that is hbo max so i recommend doing that nick before we sign off anything else you want to plug personally or uh i will i will go back to dispatches from elsewhere just for a second oh, to talk okay. about sally field because she steals oh, i forgot the show. she was in that yeah sally Field's richard good. richard e grant and sally field are unbelievable in the show it's worth watching just for the two of them one other thing i will recommend was hollywood from ryan murphy on netflix um it's only seven or eight episodes it's a very light lift it's very well done uh, in terms of anything I want to plug, no. Okay. My, my Twitter account's DickMethodGC, and I will tweet enough about either golf or wrestling that you will stop following me, but you can give me a free follow. I'm just so funny because I'm just, like, not a wrestling person. Like, I don't even notice when you – I don't even I don't even think I notice when you tweet about wrestling, even though you say you do. It just kind of goes – I think I actually do it less than I let on. I don't know. It just go. I, 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 my eyes must just glaze over it when you do. Uh, as usual, I'm Josh Chernovoy, J-O-S-H-J-U-R-N-O-V-O-Y, on Twitter and Letterboxd. Podcast Gmail is the Rewind Movie Pod at gmail.com. Uh, Twitter is just Rewind Movie Pod. I don't know what's coming next week because I'm I'm trying to sift through a couple options, but we'll have an episode for you. Who knows? At some point in quarantine, because you know we could still be without theaters for like another like five months before we even get the hope of Tenant. Who knows when it'll ever come? Maybe Nick will come back and talk about something else with us. I mentioned that HBO Max Library it has a bunch of Batman movies that uh, I plan on revisiting. Uh, hey, let's rewatch Joker and do another one. Oh, it's God, talk about things I don't... It's, I'd rather watch Memento three more times. <laughs> um, uh, but there's, like, a lot of Batman movies that I, f- I feel like I have, like, an obligation to become more well-versed in before we talk about Matt Reeves' Batman, whenever that might before finally happen. Up, give me 60 seconds on you watching Batman 66 with Adam West. I mean, that. I mean, I, I can't remember. I think I might have already recommended it. I think I probably did recommend it in a previous podcast, but for anyone that hasn't seen it, and that's one that's unfortunately not on HBO Max, but Nick spoke so highly of it that I thought it was worth watching. Because, uh, like, if you're like me and you'd only seen Batman movies that, like, from Christopher Nolan on and, like, no other Batman content, you really only know one kind of Batman. And that or I, 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 I don't want to simplify it too much, but, like, because the Nolan Batman movies are good and the other ones that have come out since are not as good uh but like it's all dark really and from like within like 10 minutes into batman 66 you just realize this movie is going to be a delight and it has bright colors and it has 
funny stuff and i think the way nick phrased it to me back when we i watched it was like if it wasn't so earnest you would think it was just all like satire farce all that and it's not it is like act like and it's not that and it's a breath of fresh air to just have something that's like that goofy and fun and wacky and have it be a superhero movie because we don't get that kind of superhero movie all that often like you know you might get a funny superhero movie but it's like a little it's biting in a different way whether it be like a you know a, 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 like like Deadpool or something like that and this is not that but it's a superhero movie you can laugh at and it's delightful uh, Nick I, you can second that you can add on but like I know I, you might go for another 20 minutes if I tell you to talk about Batman 66 but like I think you would agree correct they may be drinkers Robin but they are still human beings <laughs> god man I, I, you know, I, I man now 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 I'm mad I can't remember that final quote from that because uh like well oh wait oh yeah let's leave inconspicuously out the window with our bat ropes uh so <laughs> we, we can sign off from this podcast inconspicuously and say thanks for listening we'll see you next time